Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, please grab it and turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John for a little over a year now. Uh, since I first came to charity on July 14, 2019, we've spent the majority of our, our Sunday morning gatherings looking at this biography of Jesus Christ. And according to the original sermon plan, we're supposed to finish John back in June, but we took a few detours along the way. We did a vision series in January, we did a Hoosier One series in February, and we did a spiritual discipline series in May, and now wrapping up in June has become maybe, hopefully, wrapping up by Thanksgiving. But here's the beauty of, of preaching directly through Scripture. Here's the the beauty of of preaching through God's Word verse by verse and letting it speak for itself. It's that sometimes an unplanned word can seem like a planned word. One of the, the greatest joys of expository preaching is when God sovereignly lines up the perfect text for an occasion. And again, based on the original plan, We would have have covered this passage that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. We would have covered this passage back at the end of the summer. But we're covering it this morning. And, and, And the key exchange in this narrative is the perfect word for the moment that we are currently living in. In our passage, Pilate will ask Christ, Are you the king of the Jews? And he'll respond twice, my kingdom is not of this world. Over the last couple weeks as I was quarantined in my house, recovering with Lacey from from COVID-19 and enduring endless political advertisements everywhere I looked, watch the Braves playoff game, there's political ads, get on social media, there's political ads. In the midst of all of that, I found so much comfort and peace in these seven words from Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world. When my heart was gripped with fear, anxiety, worry, because I had far too much time on my hands, I was gently reminded over and over again by the Spirit that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And now we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, but we should recognize from the outset that Christ is in control. Christ is sovereign over COVID-19. Christ is sovereign over the 2020 election. And if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, I want you to hear me say that our ultimate hope is in Christ. So the trial of, of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate is the longest scene in John's passion narrative. It starts in in verse 28 of chapter 18 and goes all the way to verse 16 of chapter 19. And throughout these 29 verses, Christ is masterfully displayed as both a helpless victim and a powerful ruler. On the one hand, he seems completely helpless. He was a prisoner of the state. He was renounced by the religious leaders. He was abandoned by his closest followers. He was standing before the pinnacle of of secular authority. But on the other hand, 
He was transparently powerful. He stood firmly. And he spoke boldly. In verse 28, John provides the setting of the trial, which was the governor's headquarters. And this was the the temporary residence of Pilate. During major Jewish festivals like the Passover, the Roman prefect would take up a, a temporary residence in Jerusalem to keep close watch over the people. And so we, that, we, we get that setting in verse 29. And then for the remainder of the passage, we see this trial unfold. And, and John uses a, a split screen for dramatic effect. The setting is going to shift back and forth from inside to outside, from inside the headquarters where Pilate and Christ are sequestered to outside the headquarters where the violent mob is impatiently waiting for Pilate's decision. And the result of this is is seven brief scenes that we're going to work through this morning. It starts outside where the Jewish leaders turn Jesus over to Pilate. Then it goes inside where Pilate questioned Jesus about his kingship. Then it goes outside where Pilate declared Jesus innocent. Then it goes inside where the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus. And then it goes outside where Pilate declared Jesus innocent again. Inside, Pilate questioned Jesus about his origin and outside where Pilate delivered Christ to be crucified. And now, as we work through this passage together, we should pay particular attention to how the words from the crowd on the outside slowly turn the tide on the inside. Because we'll see, on three separate occasions, Christ, uh, a Pilate will declare, declare that Christ is not guilty. And Pilate will even seek to release him. But in the end, Pilate will send Christ to the cross. So let's look at at how this unfolds. Let's start reading in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside of them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So right off the bat, we should recognize the blinding power of religion. The Jews were willing to participate in full-scale corruption for the purpose of maintaining the the little bit of power and influence that they had. Now now once again, we always want to be clear about this, that when, when the Apostle John refers to the Jews, he's referring to the religious establishment. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. He's not speaking universally about an entire people group. He is speaking specifically about this one group of adversaries. And so we see there in, in verse eight, 28 that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. They themselves not enter so they wouldn't be defiled so they could eat Passover. Now according to Jewish oral law, any Jew who went into a Gentile's house or a Gentile's dwelling place was 
considered ceremonially unclean. Therefore, if these Jews went into the governor's house, they would have been defiled and they wouldn't have been able to participate in Passover. So they stayed outside. And I hope that you can, you can see the, the staggering irony here. That they were meticulously careful about keeping their rules for ceremonial cleansing, but they were completely reckless in their dealings with Jesus. I hope you can see how they're operating at the highest level of hypocrisy. And the worst part about it is they understood that they were being hypocrites. And we can tell they knew it because they took deliberate steps in murdering Jesus and they took deliberate steps towards trying to keep their hands clean from, of murdering Jesus. Now understand, they could have gotten rid of Jesus without Pilate. They could have rounded up a mob. They could have stoned him for his alleged blasphemy in the public square. You know, on several occasions in John's Gospel, we've seen it almost come to that. And we get to the book of Acts, that's exactly how they'll kill Stephen. So they're not above a public execution. You know, theoretically, they could have stoned Jesus right in front of the temple and Pilate would have more than likely looked the other way. But they had one small problem. Jesus was far too popular with the people. He was far too popular with the people. And so had they killed him out in public... The backlash would have been too severe. The outcry would have been too loud. So they needed a scapegoat. So they chose Pilate. And so Pilate comes out and, and asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? And understand, when he asks this question, he is he's sort of formally opening the civil case against Jesus. In, in the other Gospels, we're provided with more details about the couple steps that get us to this point. More details about the religious case against Jesus. The, the other Gospels outline his time before the Sanhedrin. But if in John's Gospel, we're only given a, a passing mention of the high priest. Verse 24 says that he was sent to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then we get Peter's final denial. And then in verse 28, says, And they led him from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So, again, John doesn't provide much detail, but he does provide the most important detail. Jesus was sent to Pilate from the high priest. And so, we can assume that if Christ was taken before the Roman prefect for execution, then he would have received an official charge from the current high priest on behalf of the Sanhedrin. So, therefore... John doesn't give us a lot of detail, but John wants us to see that the entire religious establishment was complicit in the murder of Jesus. They planned it and they executed it, but they didn't want the blame, so they coerced Pilate. And so Pilate asked them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And notice they respond with a non-answer. They say, if this man were not doing evil... If this man were not wrong, if this man were not a problem, why would we deliver him over to you? Or we would not have delivered him over to you. You know, basically they're saying, listen, Pilate, we know you're a busy man. I mean, we wouldn't waste your time and we certainly wouldn't waste our time. So just trust us. This guy's guilty. This guy's bad news. You know, why don't you just render a guilty verdict and we can all go back to enjoying the Passover? 
They hoped that their request would just be granted based on their reputation, but Pilate initially refused to play their game. He didn't want anything to do with this. He simply says back, take him and judge him by your own law. Now take him and handle this yourself. And when he, when, he, when he pushed it back on them, this forced the Jews to reveal their true nature. To admit something important. They said, it's unlawful for us to put anyone to death. So you can see this, this breathtaking hypocrisy. They wouldn't enter the governor's house because of these unwritten rules about uncleanliness. But they're fully on board with premeditated murder. They're okay with tiptoeing around the rules of executing an innocent man. But don't miss John's editorial note in in verse 32. John says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was going to die. So so here's what the the Jews were, were shooting for. This is what the high priest was 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 looking to accomplish. Um, according to Jewish law, if you died by hanging on a tree, then you were cursed by God. So this is another a wrinkle in the sinister plot of the religious leaders. If the Romans crucified Jesus on a cross, if they hung him on a tree, then they could blame the Romans and they could also discredit Jesus because they could point back to the Old Testament law. They could point back to Deuteronomy 21-23. And they could say to their followers, can't you see that, that God cursed Jesus of Nazareth? That He died on a tree and, and Deuteronomy 21-23 clearly says everyone who dies hanging on a tree is cursed by God. See that Jesus of Nazareth is a fraud. See that Jesus of Nazareth is a fake. See that Jesus of Nazareth is a liar. But unfortunately for them, their every step, their every move, their every plan fulfilled what Christ had already predicted and what God had already planned. Because God's plan from the beginning was for Christ to be tried by Pilate, God's plan from the beginning was for Christ to die on a tree. God's plan for the beginning was for Christ to endure and overcome the curse of sin. So John wants you to see how God used their evil plans for your good and His glory. John wants to leave no doubt about who is in control of this situation. It's not Pilate. It's not the Jewish leaders. It's Christ. So let's pick back up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So because Pilate asked the question, Are you king of the Jews? We can safely assume that the initial charge against Christ was probably treason. The Jews were were working to portray him as a rival to Caesar. Working to, to, to come before Pilate and say, This man says that he's a king. Hoping that Pilate would react quickly and stomp out the threat decisively. So Pilate starts his line of questioning with, Are you king of the Jews? And then Jesus gives this staggering answer in verse 36. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And if we can shift to our current context for a moment, we can find rest in these words from Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, I rarely engage in politics from the pulpit. It's not because I don't have opinions about politics. It's not because I don't consider many political issues to be biblical issues. I mean, I certainly have opinions about politics, and I I certainly consider many political issues to be biblical issues, but I believe the primary purpose of the pulpit is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ above and beyond any human institution. But as we prepare for another election in 10 days, as we prepare for an election that many are calling the most consequential election of our lifetime, the most important election of our lifetime, they seem to say that every four years. But maybe they're right this time. I don't know. As we prepare for this important moment in our our, our nation's history, we need to make a couple things clear about politics. First, politics are important. God called us to be salt and light within our circles of influence. So we should use our voice for implementing positive change at the national, state, and local level. We should pray for our leaders, as 1 Timothy tells us. We should submit to our governing authorities, as Romans 13 tells us. We should render to Caesar what is Caesar's, as Christ tells us. We should be willing participants in the political process. We should protect the unborn. We should speak for the marginalized. We should condemn racism. We should fight for religious liberty. And as we do that, we can talk about the economy. We can talk about health care. We can talk about the climate. We can talk about COVID-19. 
But when we enter into conversations on these issues, we should remember something that I heard J.D. Greer say a couple weeks ago, that these subjects matter. All of these things matter. All of these things are important, but Jesus matters most of all. So politics are important, but the second thing we need to realize is that politics are not most important. Because church, if we aren't careful, we can become more concerned about how our neighbor votes than where our neighbor spends eternity. Here's a gut check for you. Let's say that you're, you're heading home in a little while, uh, you finish lunch, and, and you're, you're turning down your road, and you're preparing to turn into your driveway, and as you do, let's say you look to your left, and you see that your neighbor has put up a sign in their yard for the wrong candidate, the candidate you oppose, the candidate you disagree with on every fundamental level. Let me ask you, what is your first reaction? What is your first reaction to seeing that sign in your neighbor's yard? Do you think to yourself, what a bunch of fools? How could they be so dumb? Do you plot out how you might steal the sign in the dark of the night? Do you consider getting a bigger sign for your candidate that might block the, and obscure the view of their sign? Or, do you wonder if they know Jesus? Do you contemplate how you might pray for them? Do you ponder how you might have a gospel conversation with them? Politics are not most important, but the gospel is most important. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I've delivered to you as first importance. I've delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel is of first importance. The Great Commission is of first importance. The Great Commandment is of first importance. Because Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. And because His kingdom is not of this world... His kingdom doesn't rely on any candidate or political party or policy decision. His kingdom was established and secured on a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So Christ says to Pilate twice, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate fixated on one idea from Christ's word. He says, so you're a king. So you are a king. And Christ answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens 
to my voice. So at this point, Pilate has heard enough. He's made a decision. Jesus of Nazareth was not a threat. He didn't have political aspirations. He wasn't looking to overthrow Rome. He was simply a a spiritual man from a small town who claimed to be sent with this message of eternal truth. And so Pilate heads back outside to give his verdict to the Jews. Look at verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside and told them, here's his verdict, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate says, not guilty. Um... But more than likely, he, he's once again just trying to pass the buck because he didn't want another problem with the Jewish people. Um, if we consider the, the historical context for a moment, we'll understand that Pilate was really on thin ice as a governor at this point in time. He had already made several foolish decisions in his, his tenure and he had really damaged Rome's relationship with the Jewish people. The first thing he did when he came into office, he he marched through Jerusalem. He had this huge parade with these these giant banners displaying the image of Tiberius Caesar. Then he had those banners after the parade hung all over Jerusalem. They even hung a few banners on the front of the temple. And the Jews were naturally enraged to see the image of, of a pagan emperor hanging on the front of their house of worship. And so Pilate agreed to to meet with them and and discuss their their issue and and work it out together. But once they were inside the amphitheater where they were meeting, Pilate surrounded them with soldiers and threatened to kill them. But the Jews called his bluff. Many of them laid down and bared their necks to be killed there on the spot. And so Pilate caved and removed the images. Then Pilate decided that he wanted to build a new aqueduct. And to do that, he extorted money from the temple treasury, which, once again, really upset the Jewish people. And when they staged a protest, he sent Roman soldiers into the crowds dressed as normal citizens to beat several protesters to death. And finally, we we see this in in Luke 13, that Pilate had several Galileans killed on the same day the Jews were offering their temple sacrifices. And the blood of these Galilean men was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. And so as a result of, of these incidents, the Jews hated Pilate. And the Romans were frustrated with Pilate. You see, for the Romans, all they wanted was for there to be peace and for the tax money to come in. That's all they wanted Pilate to accomplish, to keep peace with the Jews and to collect 
money from the Jews. That's all they were looking for. And so Pilate couldn't afford another riot, so he came up with this clever solution. He says it's Passover, and normally on Passover we release a, a prisoner as a, an act of, of goodwill, as an act of, of charity. And so he appeals to this, this custom And under normal circumstances, this would have been a brilliant strategic move. After all, he laid an incredibly incredibly easy choice before them. Do you want Jesus or Barabbas? Do you want the man who preached forgiveness, who healed the sick, who fed 5,000, and who raised the dead? Or do you want the man who is a robber and a menace to society? Incredibly easy choice. But the Jews don't take the bait. They scream, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And this dark moment serves as a clear picture of the gospel for us. The man who is guilty and deserving of punishment is set free, and the man who is innocent and deserving of freedom is punished. The innocent man suffers and dies in the place of the guilty man. This is the gospel. Jesus in your place. We are all Barabbas. Pilate's plan had backfired. And so as we turn to chapter 19, he tried another angle. Starting verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate had the Roman soldiers rough Christ up a little bit. They, they flogged him. They, they put a crown of thorns on his head, a purple robe on him. They struck him and they mocked him. They jokingly chanted, Hail the King of the Jews. Pilate hoped that this, this embarrassment, this shame would be enough for the angry mob. Let's continue in verse 4. So Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. See, Pilate was hoping that that shaming Jesus would appease the Jews. That he'd rough him up a little bit, he'd put him in an embarrassing outfit, he'd, he'd run him out in front of the crowd, and they would take it from there. But as soon as they saw him, they called for Pilate to crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate doubled down his original stance. He said twice, I find no guilt in him. So then the Jews play their final card and they they reveal their primary issue with Jesus. They accused him of blasphemy. They said, we have 
a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he has made himself a son of God. You'll remember earlier in John, this being an issue for them. This was clear-cut blasphemy in their opinion. And this charge sent Pilate into a spiral. If he wasn't afraid before, he was afraid now. If he didn't have a problem on his hands before, he had a problem on his hands now. And so Pilate takes Jesus back inside in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate questioned Jesus about his origin. Where where did you come from? Why are you here? And Jesus refused to answer his questions. And so in verse 10, we can see that Pilate was was definitely getting annoyed and may have been becoming enraged. And so he essentially says to Jesus, don't you know who I am? Don't you understand the situation here? You should show me a little respect because I hold your life in my hands. I make the final call if you live or if you die. So if I ask you a question, it would be in your best interest to answer it. But then Jesus gives him a stern correction in verse 11. You have no authority over me at all. You have no authority over me at all. Unless it had been given to you from above. So here was Jesus. Standing before one of the most powerful men in the ancient world. Standing there bloodied, bruised, and battered. And still boldly saying, No, Pilate, you don't understand. You don't have any authority here. You don't have the authority in this situation because I am the good shepherd who lays down his life willingly for his sheep. You believe that your decisions have significance, that your actions matter, that you're pulling all the strings, that you make the final call, but you and every person outside in the crowd can't do a single thing apart from the plans of my Father in heaven. Jesus understood that he was in God's hands, not Pilate's. And so now Pilate really wanted to be done with Jesus. He really wanted to remove himself from this situation. We see as we pick back up in verse 12, he even seeks to release Jesus. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement. In, In Aramaic, Gabbatha. 
Now it was the day of preparation, the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. In the end, Pilate let a golden opportunity slip right through his fingers. He pronounced Christ not guilty on three occasions. He even tried to release him. But when the opposition turned up the heat, he did everything in his power to preserve his position. Ultimately, his authority carried more weight than his integrity. But while Pilate's actions were bad, we can't help but notice the Jewish leaders' actions were worse. They completely rejected the kingship of Jesus Christ and they claimed Caesar as their king. They cried out, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. God's people acknowledged a human power over a divine power because they assumed the former would help them maintain their current position. And so they placed their hope in Caesar. And we know they paid dearly for it. Years later, the same Roman government that they pledged their allegiance to would destroy Jerusalem, crush their temper, temple, and, and, and decimate their people. They placed their hope in the wrong place. And so we should clearly see the warning for us regarding the 2020 election. Church, our ultimate hope isn't in Trump or Biden. It isn't in Collins, Loeffler, Warnock, Purdue, or Ossoff. It isn't in Amy Coney Barrett. It isn't in a revamped healthcare system. It isn't in a new tax code. It isn't in a coronavirus vaccine. Our ultimate hope is in Christ and His kingdom is not of this world. And if we know those words to be true, then we should realize that politics aren't of first importance. Even though politics are important. So, over the next week and a half, let's pray for our nation. And sometime over the next couple weeks or on November 3rd, let's exercise our right to vote. But after we check our preferred boxes, let's leave our polling place with Edward Moat's most famous hymn on our hearts. These words that he wrote Almost two centuries ago, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ 
the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this timely word as we approach another important election in our country. Father, I pray as we consider this passage, as we consider Jesus' trial before Pilate, that we would understand the story is not about Pilate. The story is not about Roman soldiers or Jewish leaders or anyone but Christ. Lord, help us to see and understand that the focal point, the center of this story, is our Savior standing bloodied and bruised in front of this powerful secular leader and saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And saying, you don't have the authority. I do. Father, thank you that Christ lived the life that we couldn't live and that Christ died the death that we deserve so that we might regain fellowship with you. Lord, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for the, the joy and privilege that I have to preach it each week. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.